Isaiah 44, starting at verse 14, is on 664. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel and the rain makes it grow. It serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and he roasts meat on, the, on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, Save me for you are my god. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see, and their minds, so they cannot understand. No one reflects. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. I'll make something detestable with the rest of it. And I will bow down to a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Isn't there a lie in my right hand? The second reading is from Acts 17. And we're starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said... May we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of, for what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Arapagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for bringing us the reading. Um, my name's Tim, and uh, I have the privilege tonight of uh, tackling this question in the screen above us. Uh, God, don't all religions lead to you? And I want to start this evening with a quote uh, by a guy called Jeff, who's in his mid-30s, and he says this, a religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy to peace in the world. If religions continue to insist that they have the truth, the world will never know peace. Now, as I was doing this talk and I was thinking about this, I think this quote pretty much sums up our culture's attitude towards religion. In an attempt to remove uh, the religious battles which we see raging on our TVs in front of us, our cultures develop this maxim, which, which sort of says that all religions lead to God. Our culture believes that all worldviews, doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist, a Scientologist, a Muslim, a Christian, or agnostic. All worldviews lead to the same place. And I must be honest, as a Christian, I sort of find this idea, I sort of find it interesting, and, and I sort of am drawn to it. I find it as an attractive idea. But as I think about it, attraction alone isn't enough to make something true. So tonight, we're going to consider this question. God, don't all religions lead to you? And we're going to look at it in three ways. First, we'll look at the philosophical ideas behind this question. Then, we will examine the four main arguments put forward in favour of all religions leading to God. And then third, we will see that this question is actually not a new question, it's a very old question. So first, let's start by considering the two main philosophical ideas that are going on behind this question, and they're on the screen above me. Um, the two main ideas are religious pluralism, on one hand, and religious exclusivism, on the other hand. First, religious pluralism is the idea that there are many religious truths, but there can, there can be no absolute or ultimate religious truth. That's religious pluralism. Religious exclusivism is the idea that there is only one absolute religious truth. So behind this, this question is not a battle of religions. It's actually a battle of two directly opposed philosophical worldviews. On the one hand, you have the pluralist, 
who believes that all religions lead to God. And on the other hand, you have the religious person that believes that only one religion leads to God. So tonight, friends, what we're going to do is we're going to consider which one of these two philosophical positions is more plausible. So with this understanding behind us, let's now turn to the four main arguments used to support uh, the view that all religions lead to God. And the first of these is stated in sort of this way. Uh, Each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none of them see the whole truth. Now, you, you guys may have heard the story of the three blind men and the elephant. Has anyone heard that story? Yeah, a few nods. Okay, the story goes along the way that three blind men are walking along and they come across an elephant. And the elephant allows them to touch, the, touch, the, uh, touch it. And, and the first blind man, he goes, mm, this, this animal is long and flexible, like a, like a snake. And the second blind man goes, no, 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 no. This animal is thick and round, like a tree trunk. And he's hanging on to the leg of the elephant. And then the third blind man, he goes, no, 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 this elephant, this elephant is large and flat. And the third blind man was touching the elephant's side. And the narrator concludes that each blind man could only feel one part of the elephant. None of them could envisage the entire elephant. And in the same way, by analogy, it's argued that all the major religions see, have a grasp on part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole elephant. None can see the whole spiritual truth that's happening. And in one sense, it's, a, it's quite a good analogy. It's a fun story to tell. But, but it creates a problem for the pluralist. It creates a problem for the pluralist who tells the story because the story is told from a point of view of somebody who's not blind. The only way that someone can claim to see that there's an elephant is if they claim to be standing in a superior position, a superior vantage point to look down. And though this story has the appearance of humility, it ultimately invalidates all other claims to discern truth while placing itself in this position of superior truth while saying it is the only one that can see the elephant. And the reason this is problematic for the pluralist is because the pluralist denies that there is anything as ultimate truth. There is no superior truth. That's the first argument. The second argument is that it's stated this way. Uh, All religions are equally valid and are basically teaching the same thing. Again, we we sort of want to affirm this, don't we? We we want to go, yeah, all religions are basically teaching the same thing. But then when we stand back a little bit, do we want to really say that Satanism is teaching the same thing as Buddhism? It doesn't make any sense. So, so smarter pluralists have sort of nuanced this saying a little bit. And that they say that all the world's major religions basically teach the same thing. But, but the problem with this is this also can't be true. Because Islam teaches that there is a God, 
while most streams of Buddhism teach that God doesn't even exist. Then other pluralists, even smarter, they suggest that all the major religions are built on top of one another and they share at the same root the same God or same source and that this God or source is often described as the all-loving spirit in the universe that teaches love, joy and peace. But the problem with this statement is it's simplistic and it's also just incorrect. (laughs) Um, Judaism, Islam and Christianity, yeah, it's true. They share the same Abrahamic roots. But there's no link between them and Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, Also, a a quick study of comparative religions will, will quickly show you how simplistic this argument is. But there's a, there's a bigger problem for the pluralist that, that sits behind this. And the bigger problem is that by reducing God to love, joy, peace and peace, the pluralist has created its own God. The pluralist has created its own superior source. And they're essentially claiming that that their view of God is more enlightened and more superior to that of all the other world religions. In other words, the pluralist is putting their idea of God forward in the ultimate superior position. But that's a problem for the pluralist. Because the ultimate superior truth position is something that they deny. So this leads me to the third argument that the pluralist puts forward, and that is that religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. And the argument goes sort of this way. Um, If you were born in India, you'd be a Hindu. Or if you were born uh, in Pakistan, you'd be a Muslim. All spiritual claims are the product of our particular historical and cultural moment and no one should claim to know the truth because no one can judge whether one claim to spiritual and moral reality is truer than another. Now it, now it is true that our cultural biases uh, do make weighing competing truth claims more difficult but they don't make it impossible. Uh, We are all, we must admit, we are all historically and culturally conditioned. But But if we admit that, so does the pluralist making this claim. The pluralist has to admit that he's historically and culturally conditioned in the modern Western Enlightenment drenched individualistic culture of his day. And then another problem for the pluralist is that by their own reasoning, they have no basis to make this claim. And the reason is because of their historical and cultural bias. So again, that argument falls over. Uh, the fourth and final argument is, it goes something like this. Um, it's arrogant to insist your religion is right 
and try to convert others to it. Uh, It's commonly expressed in this way. Uh, Once you become aware that there are many, many other equally intelligent and good people in the world who do not hold to the different, who, who hold to different beliefs from you, it's arrogant and wrong for you to continue to try and convert them to your superior truth. Again, on the surface, I, I want to say, yes, there's something right about that. But when we scratch just an inch below, we will find that there's a logical inconsistency in this statement that means we can't agree with it. Now, the underlying belief under this expression is that any exclusive claim to superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But the problem with this objection is it is in itself an exclusive claim to spiritual knowledge. It makes exclusive claims about God, it makes exclusive claims about the world, and it makes exclusive claims about us who live in it. And by making these claims, what the pluralist is actually trying to do is he's trying to convince people to drop their traditional views of religion and convert to the the superior pluralist view that they're putting forward. So, we have to come back. If it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and try to convert others to it, then the pluralist, by their own definition, is no better than all the other major religions in the world. So where, where does that leave us? Where, where does that leave us here? Uh, many of you may be out there thinking, well, how can I know what is true? What, what is true? And tonight, I want to end by just telling two stories. Everybody loves stories, so I'm going to tell two of them. And the first is a story, it's a historical story. And it's a story about the long search for the Logos. Now, many of you may know, uh, leading up to the the first century, uh, Greco-Roman philosophers uh, were philosophizing, and what they were were trying to do for centuries was to find the Logos. Now, Logos is um, the Greek word which we get our English word, logic. They basically mean the same thing. And what the Greek philosophers were trying to do was they they were trying to find the internal Logos or logic that made the whole of life make sense. And they'd been at it for centuries. Coming towards the end of the first century, these philosophers had become disillusioned and deflated. The reason being, they hadn't been able to find the Logos. But, sorry, and this led them to conclude that there was no Logos. There was no absolute truth that can explain all of life. That was their conclusion. But then, in the late first century, an unknown author called John published a work that sent ripples through the Greco-Roman philosophical world. And the starting lines of this work were these. 
in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He is life, and this life is the light to all mankind. Now, these words by John landed like a bomb in first century Greco-Roman philosophical world. John was claiming that not only did the Logos exist, but he was also claiming that the Logos was not a concept or a philosophical idea. The Logos was a person. And what John did is he published his book to convince the philosophers and to convince you and me that Jesus Christ is the Logos. Jesus Christ is the absolute truth that makes every other part of life make sense. And John says this, he says, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it wasn't just John who who said that Jesus was the Logos. Jesus himself said that he was the Logos publicly. He said this, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And later on in John's book, uh, he accounts this great conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And Jesus says to Pontius Pilate during his trial, Jesus said, I'll quote him, Jesus said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And Pilate responded. And in Pilate's response, notice his, his historical and cultural conditioning that's going on. Okay? So in Pilate's response, he responds by saying, what is truth? And then Pilate turned and walked away. And what Pilate didn't realize that what he was doing was, Pilate didn't realize that he was walking away from the Logos. The truth was standing right in front of Pilate. But Pilate's learned cultural and historical conditioning had blinded blinded him to the truth. Now, friends, the search for the Logos that that haunted the the Greco-Roman philosophers, it continues to haunt many people today. When we're honest, we're all searching for the Logos. We're we're all searching for that, that one thing that makes life make sense. And friends, I want to encourage you tonight that we can do better than Pilate. Our culture 
has conditioned us to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from truth. But I want to encourage us to set aside our historical and cultural conditioning. I want to encourage us to walk towards the Logos, walk towards the truth, walk towards Jesus. And friends, if you haven't looked into Jesus as an adult, please do so. Look, see me after church. I've got a stack of John's book up the front here. I'll be standing at the back. I'm happy to give this to you for free. You can take it away and you can read John's work about the Logos. And you, on your own, can weigh up whether Jesus actually is who he claims to be. And so tonight, um, I want to end on a a personal note. I want to end by sharing my story of my journey of searching for the Logos. Now, many of you know that when I went to university, um, I I wasn't a Christian. Uh, I was really looking forward to university uh, because it was an opportunity for me to be free and it was an opportunity for me to find what makes me happy. And so, as I went to university, I, I threw myself wholeheartedly into the things that my culture had told me would make me happy. There were girls, there was grog, and there was good times. And I must admit, they they were fun. But like you guys know, the fun never lasted. It, It vanished like the morning mist. So I didn't give up on my pursuit for happiness. Uh, I, I then turned and tried something else. I, I tried uh, social justice and charity. Ran a great charity up at university. But the happiness that I got from running that charity was fleeting. It, it didn't last. It didn't satisfy me. And then in my, my third year of university, I had to do a course called Jurisprudence. Um, which is uh, the, the philosophy behind legal decision-making. And we had to read a whole heap of different philosophers. And, and while I was reading these different philosophers, it sort of made me wake up and go, there, there must be more to life than, than just this. And so then my search for the Logos began. My search for the thing that made life make sense. And not long after this, um, I was out in a bar and I got chatting to a guy called Lloyd. And I found out that Lloyd was a Christian. And late at night in my very, I'll be honest, my incoherent state, um, I threw all my questions about Christianity at him. Many of the questions that we've addressed tonight. And wisely, Lloyd didn't answer them then and there. He said, how about you give me my number, uh, your number, and uh, we'll catch up and we'll go for a coffee next week. It was the first time I'd given a guy my number at a pub. <laughs> it's very strange. And so we did. We swapped numbers and we caught up and had a, a cafe latte or whatever. And um, over the next couple of months, 
Lloyd answered my questions and we sat down and we read the Bible and we investigated Jesus together on Jesus' own terms. And over these, these couple of months, three things struck me. Three things. Um, the first was that there was so much non-Christian historical evidence that suggested that Jesus lived, died, and also rose again. Now, being, being a lawyer in training, that sort of evidence was like gold. I just grabbed onto it. There was no bias associated to it, and I grabbed onto it. Uh, the second thing that struck me was that Christianity was more inclusive than I'd ever imagined. Christianity didn't discriminate against race, against culture, against sex, against social status, against the rich or the poor. It accepted all. Because Christianity is not about what we can do to please God. But Christianity is all about what God has done for you and me. And the third thing that struck me was Lloyd himself. Lloyd was my age. Lloyd seemed to have what I was looking for. Lloyd was centered. He was secure. And he had a, a great group of friends around him that respected him. Lloyd, as I watched him, he had this deep-seated joy, uh, this, this happiness that I knew I didn't have. But I knew that I wanted it. And as I, as I reflect now on my time at uni, I can see where I went wrong. At uni, I set out aiming for happiness, finding the thing that made me happy. But since becoming a Christian, I've realized that happiness is not the aim. Happiness is a byproduct of being connected to the Logos. So I want to end tonight by asking you two questions. First, have you found the Logos? And second, if you haven't found the Logos, what's stopping you from investigating Jesus? Jesus.